You're listening to the Locked in Shed podcast. I'm Richard Barber, and this is the third of my recordings. I'm keen to create a library of information about the history of snow sport coaching in the UK and a learning resource for instructors and coaches. So far, I've learned about the impact of one of the UK's most influential characters on the nascent artificial ski slope scene and the development of skiing in England. In this shorter episode, John Shedden, former national coach and director of coaching for Snowsport England, tells me why he decided on study over the life of a ski instructor. Along the way, he takes a pimped-up Ford Anglia to Austria and his university teachers realise his potential for further study. The foundations are set for his future writing work. I started by asking John about what he decided to do instead of pursuing the life of a ski instructor. I did two things. One detail was that I went to university. This is the end of the 60s. I was assistant national coach. The British Ski Instructional Council, as it was called, had determined that Daisy would be the training and grading agency for ski instructors working in mountain-based ski schools, and the National Ski Federation of Great Britain would develop a coaching scheme on behalf of its members to operate locally, to coach locally, to develop the sport locally, so that local people, taxpayers, could access the sport of skiing, which wasn't really possible um, in the 60s. And the Secretary General of the National Ski Federation of Great Britain, uh, a man called General Sir Ian Graham, a really super character, he um, sat me down and said, as Assistant National Coach, you have these responsibilities. And he said, in the future, skiing, we hope, will become a sport like other sports where it will be possible for us to employ staff specifically to run the national coaching scheme which doesn't yet exist but will exist at some time in the future in order that our national coach would be able to be supported by the sports council the national coach would have to meet the following criteria And he gave me a list, and that list was make sure or become qualified to the highest levels within Britain, to become qualified abroad by some other agencies which were recognised as being significant, to speak and learn a foreign language, to learn how to take photographs and film and give presentations using photographs and film to use film for analysis, to become a school teacher so that your person would have the authority to speak to the education authorities. Because in those days, there were no academies and so on. The education authorities didn't speak to people in sport unless they were qualified teachers. And also to have a degree in some relevant subject so that the person was uh, a graduate and could be developed as a national coach 
as a postgraduate learner, if you like, and, and to join the British Association of National Coaches, which was an organization consisting solely of national coaches, but which ran a continuous professional development scheme for national coaches. So they were some of the things that he gave me in this list. And I decided that what I would do would be ready at the point at which this role of national coach may come about. And I set off, mm -hmm. set about ticking off the things on the list. And so off to university. So where and what did you study? I, I went to Warwick University and, and applied for a two-year course as a, a mature student doing a, a teaching diploma so that I could qualify as a school teacher. I thought I'd take it step by step. I applied for two years because that was the only, only that amount of grant that I could get from the Cheshire Education Authority because I already had two years when I went to the art college in 1960. So I went to Liverpool University Art College Division for two years. So I had two years of grant left available for me to use. I was broke, uh, had, a, had virtually no savings, and a, a homemade Ford Anglia with a big engine and big wheels, which I used to travel around in. I've got to ask about the Ford Anglia. Sorry, you can't get away with that one. Homemade <laughs> Ford Anglia. Well, in 1965, <laughs> in 1965, Carl Fuchs said, if you want to come and work for me in the Austrian ski school in Carl Bridge, you'll have to go to Austria and get a qualification. I've arranged for you to do this by meeting Colin Whiteside in the doorway of Ellis Brigham's shop in Manchester on the 15th of November 1965. I didn't know Colin at the time. I'd, I'd heard his name, but I'd never, didn't really know him. Met him in the doorway with my skis and suitcase or backpack, whatever. And he said, right, let's go. And he had a Ford Anglia outside the shop, which we got into and drove off to Austria. Four of us actually went in this car and we went for six weeks to Austria. But he modified his by putting in a big engine and uh, taking out all the panels and everything so there was extra space inside for us to store our luggage and everything inside the car as well as in the boot area. That's not what normally people strip cars out to hide in, the, in their car, John. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Yes. Oh, we had some interesting trips through, through customs posts en route. It was, it, was a, it was absolutely a fascinating adventure. It really was. But anyway, my mother had a Ford Anglia. And so uh, by, by 1968, 69, and I was thinking of what I was going to be doing in the future, at the time, I was still traveling around the country with Robin Brock Hollinshead, who was the national coach. And most of the time, we traveled in his vehicle, as, us, as we spoke about last time, carrying rolls of artificial slope, which we laid out on the grass for people to try. But occasionally, I had to go to places on my own. And so, uh, by now, I bought my mother's car, which had a 997cc engine in, but one of the people I taught on an artificial ski slope in Liverpool 
was the boss of a Ford dealership. And I spoke to him about acquiring a new 1600 GT engine, uh, a Lotus Cortina gearbox, and uh, some custom-made transmission. And I also went to Pico Exhaust Company in Birkenhead and asked them could they make me a custom-fit exhaust system for this car. And I bought a set of Roche-style wheels, which were the, the chrome spoke wheels on a 1600E Cortina. And I got tin snips and cut up the wheel arches with tin snips and folded them out and then pasted them over with glass fibre paste and so on. So I had this Ford Anglia with wheel extensions, fat wheels with fat tyres and a 1600 GT engine, um, which went from... Not to 60 in about three seconds. <laughs> it was a very fast car. And um, very comfortable to drive, very easy to do long distances with and so on. My greatest joy at that time was having a two-page spread in Hot Car magazine showing pictures of my car. <laughs> oh, fantastic. I hope you still got a copy of that. Yes, yes, I have actually. <laughs> oh, crikey. Yeah. So that was so. what that was about. Yeah. So... Not, not not only have you introduced a whole load of things into snow sport in the UK, are you saying you also invented the pimping of cars? Oh, no, no. Hot Car Magazine was in place uh, <laughs> illustrating everyone who was doing this. But Bob Brigham had a friend who had an Austin Healy Sprout, as we used to call them, uh, a small two-seater sports car. But he had a Jaguar um, V8 or something, a very big Jaguar engine in it. And his driving seat was, was where the little parcel shelf behind the driving seat normally is. And he'd take great pleasure at sitting in the traffic lights while fast cars would come along and look down on him <laughs> and then roar away and leave them standing <laughs> with his Austin Ely Sprite, which did about 200 miles an hour. <laughs> So I, 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 I was friendly with people who, who liked messing about with cars, so I did. Mm. Fantastic. Sounds, sounds great. Never done that, but there we are. They're just yeah. four wheels and getting from A to B for me, but uh, I can see why people would get into that. Well, it was a question, really, of converting something which I could afford into something which would last me nearly 10 years and be able to uh, drive comfortably around the country with a new big engine is more reliable than a small one. It's not working as hard. So that was the mm. rationale. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there you were. You went off to university to qualify as a teacher. Yes. And after the first three months or so, the first term, the, my personal tutor called me in and said, why are you doing this course? You should be doing a B.Ed., a four-year honours degree. And I said, because I can't afford it, I don't have the money, I don't have the time. And I came to do a teaching qualification. I said, no, no, from everything that you presented so far, you should be doing the degree course. Let me have a word with the academic board. He came back and said, the academic board have agreed that you can do the course. What you've done so far will count towards the four years, and you can now switch 
to the B.Ed. You'll still get a teacher's qualification at the end of it, but you'll cover much more of the stuff you really want to learn. Because, of course, when I went for the interview, they said to me, why do you want to come here? And I said, because when I'm teaching people to ski, I teach doctors and nurses and teachers and a whole range of people who all seem to know more about it than I do. The only thing I can do is ski better than them and demonstrate the skiing manoeuvres that they're supposed to learn. And the more I looked into it, the more I realised that there was something going on called learning, which was alongside the instructing and the teaching. And so I said to the interview panel, so the, what I, the reason I've come here is because when I'm teaching, I want to know what my pupils are doing. I want to know what's going on inside them when they are learning. And the, the chairman of the panel turned to other members of the panel and they chuckled and he turned back and said, we don't normally tell students at this stage in the interview process. On this occasion, we will. You have a place. And while you're here, if you find out, tell us because no one else knows. <laughs> <laughs> So, and did you so find I, out? I, well, I was encouraged by that and so set about with great enthusiasm to find out what people were doing when they were learning. Hmm. So I spent my university course studying learning, if you like, hmm. particularly the psychology of human performance. I was particularly interested in how people perform physical activities with a very high level of automation, but beyond normal behavior. In other words, as far as I was concerned, athletic behavior what I came to call skillful high performances. So with his study dreams realized, John embarks on learning and research that formed the basis of writing work and a new model of skill development in sport. So whether or not you've heard of PET, you should tune in to the next episode to find out more. Where did that model come from? How does it contrast with another? And what does it mean for development of skill within snow sports? This has been a Locked In Shed podcast production. Until next time, stay safe, look after yourself, and bye-bye for now.